All right, love you, Scott. Appreciate you, man. If you have a Bible, you could go to Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. We have been walking through, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, To that end, you should have got a a booklet, hopefully, when you came in. I think that was the plan anyway. Uh, The first sermon that we're doing, which would be week number 15 in your booklet, we actually took a couple sermons and extended them. So we've been in a little bit longer, but that would be in here as well. Um, when I when I think about why are we handing you a little study booklet, I, I want to mention something to you that goes a little bit maybe um, underappreciated at times. If you ask me, what are the goals in, in teaching the Bible? What what do you want to accomplish? If if God would give you, I was going to say one one wish, like a like a genie. If uh, if God gave you like a Solomon kind of moment, ask of me what you will, that sort of thing. You know, it's it's evident, right? I want to make Jesus as appealing and as beautiful as He is as beautiful and appealing as he is to magnify him in the sense that we would see him more clearly obviously i want to be truthful i want to get it right i want to be logical and have good persuade persuasion right all those kind of things but i think that one of the most underappreciated aspects of this moment when we gather together and the thing that i long for the thing i pray for is i want to stir in you a hunger for the words of god I want to stir in you something that's when you come away from here, you think to yourself, I need more of that. I want more of who Jesus is to me in the Scriptures. And if all you get, if all you get of the Acts series, if all you get of the Bible is, is the thought out and even logical, persuasive, passionate, impressive... <laughs> I, was get, I was going a little too far for my preaching. But the point is, is if all you get is me from the book of Acts... God help us. Seriously. Really. He, he's given us this word that we might pour over it. That's the intention. And so we give a book like this because throughout the weeks, right? Throughout the weeks, if you're not getting stirred inside of you a hunger for the things of God, then, then this in some, some way is a great exercise. It's better than nothing. But it certainly isn't what I'm praying for. It's not our best. My hope is that this is simply a launching point and then all of us are diving in. And I hope that makes sense. If you find this helpful, that's just a tool, that's great. If you have other methods, go for it. Um, that's totally fine. We'd love to hear feedback. But I just want you to know the heart behind the book. That's, that's the heart behind the book. At the keyboard, what do we say? Always behind it, this heart. God, give a hunger, give a hunger, give a hunger for the Word. That's, that's the idea. This is the 19th verse of Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read starting here and go all the way through the 12th chapter. I'm actually going to read 19 through 30 uh, to start, and then we'll come back to chapter 12 in just a moment. Let me begin with 11:19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let me just pause there and pray. God, would you, would you bring light? Bring light. We often see dimly. We see through a haze. We have hardened hearts. So give, give us insight. Help us get at the truth. Give us more of your Son. Holy Spirit, take from Jesus and give to us. And I pray that as we pour over your Word and sit under your Word and hear it preached, God, I pray you'd give us a hunger. you give us a hunger to know you more in the pages of Scripture. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read chapter 12 in just a little while. And one of the things that we're seeing at this particular point in in Acts, this is not going to surprise anyone, this is the mission of the gospel going forward, right? We're We're hitting some pivot points. This next chapter in chapter 12 will be the last time that we see Peter prominently prominently uh, as a part of the the narrative, a part of the story. It's going to switch almost exclusively to the unique and powerful and amazing ministry of the Apostle Paul. The mission is going forward, and I want to take just these short little pictures, these little scenes that we're getting from what's happening in the growth of the church, and I want us to learn about some of the characteristics, the nature of the mission of God. I I want to think together about what it looks like for us to go. I believe that we exist for a reason. We exist to make disciples. That's the mission Jesus gave us. And these snapshots, these little pictures, help to show us what that mission should be like. The first thing I want to say, I'm just going to give you all all the things I'm going to say about mission today. These are the things we're going to look at. We're going to see that discipleship is mission. Now, discipleship is kind of a churchy word. It basically just means growing in in Christlikeness, growing in the ways of Jesus, listening to him closely, walking like him more evidently. So discipleship is mission. That's what we're going to see in Antioch. Discipleship is mission. And then in the next chapter, in 12, when we read it there in a moment, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see first and foremost, glaringly, in an obvious kind of way, that mission is costly. Mission is costly. I think we ought to linger there. We are a comfort-driven society. For many of us, When it comes to our mission, we're capitalists at heart. We want to have the lowest number of inputs, create the largest number of outputs, right? We we want to completely, 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 if we can, avoid cost. Cost becomes sort of a swear word. We want all profit and no cost. We're going to find out, be reminded once again that mission is costly. There's no getting around it. Mission is costly. The last thing we're going to see is that the mission is God's. It is God's. It is God's from start to finish. We don't, we don't insert ourselves. He does not need us. We don't get glory in the end. The mission is God's. These are the characteristics that we're going to see as the church moves forward in faithfulness, 
preaching the gospel. That's what we find. This first picture happens in the city of Antioch. And Antioch had come to be sort of a a profoundly important city in that region. Uh, Most people who are very, very smart, um, booky kind of people that I'm not one, but I know how to read them, uh, they tell me that uh, Antioch was probably the third most influential city at that time. And so when you read these, one of the problems that we have, one of the difficulties of us reading something from the New Testament is that all the names and places meld together. And they might as well, they might as well be meaningless to, us, meaningless to us. But Antioch is a very important city, probably 500,000 people. And it's sort of a metropolitan kind of place. It's a kind of place that you would go to hear intellectuals. You would go to learn about other cultures. If you lived in Antioch, it was probably for good reason. You maybe were a bit sophisticated. There was an exchange of culture and food and ideas and trade, commerce there. It was very important. As a side note, Antioch was founded, was named for the father of one of the best Roman general guys. Like, I, I don't know, think, think like the gladiator guy who's like awesome. I don't remember the end of that story. I always use illustrations and I, it could have be bad. But that guy, you know that guy who was like a really awesome soldier dude? Well, apparently the guy who founded Antioch had won many battles. He had a ton of prestige in the army. And so he just got to be the guy who founded cities, apparently. Do uh, you know that that's not that long ago that we lived in a place and a time when you could found a city and just rename it? In fact, the little town that I grew up in, North Dakota, its name is Manville, M-A-N-V-E-L. It's actually in Manville, Texas. But there's, it's Manville, and the, the guy who founded it, his last name was Manville. And I remember being in fourth grade and reading in the public school library the story of this Manville man who planted it. And I, I was angry. I was angry. You know why I was angry? Because I wanted my own city. I, want, I wanted a town. It's, uh, we live in unfortunate days, everyone. It's, uh, it's not as easy anymore to just go found a town. But apparently this Roman general dude just went and just founded the city and named it after his dad. There's also a bunch of other cities, even in the book of Acts, just to compa- compound our confusion. There's other cities, even in Acts and other regions, named Antioch as well. Apparently he named a number of places for his dad. And so there can be confusion. Which Antioch are we talking about? And we'll have to think about that. This one is a place where a profound movement of grace began. It spawned off Paul's first missionary journey. He left from there, came back to there. It was one of the places that he really got a foothold as being the Paul that we know of from the New Testament. But later on, we're going to see a different Antioch, and it's a different one. It's sort of like saying, now I know there's Paris, France, but there's also Paris, Texas. I always get confused. Has anyone ever been to Paris, Texas? There's nothing to confuse. Anyway, that's the whole point. So there's going to be a couple of places of Antioch. And we know that people, people were scattered to go preach the gospel there. This is evidence to us that God is using persecution and suffering to move forward his mission. It's not all beautiful, perfect strategy. It's not all roses and daisies and candy cane lane. God uses persecution. We're reminded immediately in this passage. It comes to the reader's mind. Yes, Stephen was martyred. And the persecution, the violent persecution sent them off to this place. And even in this, the grace of God is working so that people go to preach. They preach some even to the Hellenists. We've seen that word a number of times. In the Greek, the word is actually the Hellenistas, which is a wonderful, wonderful name for a group of people. They were preaching the Lord Jesus 
It says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This sounds like great mission, right? You preach Jesus, and then the two things that always accompany the preaching of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is in it, the preaching of Jesus brings about these two fruits all the time, belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. What, is Jesus, what did Peter say at Pentecost? Right? Believe and repent. Repent and believe. Over and over and over again. Repent, believe. Have faith, turn. That is the pattern here. So this is, by all measures, normal, standard mission. This is evangelism. Go reach the lost and ask them to believe and ask them to repent. Turn from their wicked ways, right? But I want you to note something. That what takes place here in Antioch is more than mere conversion. It's more than mere words from people's mouths. It's more than just an expression of belief. It's a way of life that Barnabas is after. And so when word gets to Jerusalem, Barnabas, whose very name means encourager. You remember that? Acts 4.36 tells us that. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. He's an encourager. And you know what they send Barnabas to do? I imagine the mission was something like this. Barnabas, we want you to go down there and Barnabas all over that thing. That's what, that's what we want you to do. Barnabas, whose name means encourager, goes and he sees this spark of grace, this beautiful life that's in Antioch. And he just goes and he breathes on it. He breathes encouragement and strength and joy. What you rejoice in will be duplicated, right? And there is great joy in these people. The grace of God has met them. And so Barnabas, in sort of a play on words. It's also the, the same word behind him going and encouraging them, exhorting them. That's a very, very similar word in the New Testament to the Holy Spirit, who is a helper, who comes alongside who keeps, the, who keeps fanning the flame of our faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas, who is full of that same spirit, does that work. I like to imagine Barnabas going around and, and attempting to keep things alive. As a, as a failed attempt at something like this, I tried to light a fire this last couple of weeks with wet wood. You ever tried that? You ever done that before? Maybe if you're having a good day and you just haven't felt like a failure for a while, try it. It'd be, be great. Um, I had these visions of just being like just totally man of the house, right? Christmas is coming, my in-laws. So I, I got my slippers. I got those for Christmas. I wanted slippers and like a robe and walk around to the fire. You know what I mean? Like I wanted, you just want to be that guy around Christmas. And so I went and I got this wood from this place on Monroe and I thought it was going to be awesome, but it was right after four straight days of rain. And when I was loading it in the van, it just sort of felt a little bit wet. But you think that deterred me? No, right? I filled the fireplace and for at least three different occasions, I just sat in this little, little flame, took a chainsaw to the Christmas tree last week too, took the little, you know, the best way to start an explosive fire is through the Christmas needles. I'm putting those in there, the little things going, and I tried to Barnabas that thing alive. I really did. I'm blo- right? I'm like, I'm blowing on it, doing everything I can. I'm looking around. There's fire here. How do I, how do I get it going? And I know this is a, a failed attempt on my part, but I imagine Barnabas a little bit like that, right? Hey, it sounds like there's fire in Antioch. And Barnabas gets sent up there and he looks and he's, he's rejoicing and he begins to say to himself, how do we fan this into flame? And what happens is this spark of grace from God launches the first missionary journey. We're going to see that in Acts 13. But in order to accomplish it, Barnabas plays Match.com, Right? He looks at what's happening in Antioch and he says to himself like, oh, I see what you need. I think I know a guy. 
I think I know a guy. And then he goes back to Saul. And he knows Saul's story, which coincidentally, Saul, it's probably been five or six years and no one knows exactly what he's been doing. Saul's been trained. He's been walking faithfully. Saul did not get converted miraculously in Acts 9 and then get immediately go off into missionary journeys. He was trained. He was trained and he lived faithfully with Christians. Barnabas says, Saul, I know a place. There's a place and I told him I knew a guy and now you're the guy and I know you and I know a place. And Barnabas does this amazing work of bringing them together. And I want you to note something. Paul, the consummate missionary of the New Testament, he is the guy who, who is entrepreneurial. He can start new things. He goes to hard places. In fact, sometimes he prays and he says this. You know he says in the New Testament sometimes? He says, I've made it my aim to only preach Christ where he has never been named. He wants the hard places. He wants the new work. He wants the lost. But I want you to note something. What Paul understood something about mission that we can't miss. For a whole year... According to verse 26, for a whole year, they met with the church and discipled them. They took them deeper. Discipleship, training, strengthening, growing in grace, understanding God's word, applying the gospel to all these facets of life. This is mission. Paul is no less on mission when he is waking up in the morning and what do they eat? Eating eggs and bread and saying, Hello, Hellenist Christian. Are you trusting Jesus today? What are your challenges today? Are you putting sin to death today? Paul is discipling the church for a whole year and it is just as much mission. When we read Acts, because it takes place over the course of maybe 40-some years, we get this idea that Paul just had this breathless expansion, Right? He was like Krispy Kreme. You know the story of Krispy Kreme, right? They were popular and everyone loved their donuts and then they just, they just spread way too fast. They had massive financial problems. We're thinking about filing bankruptcy. They just, it was just, the, whoever was running it was like, more donuts, more donuts, new, 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 right? So that all of a sudden, it used to be like a Krispy Kreme was like, what you have? And now they're like in Walmart, right? We get this idea from Paul we get this idea of Paul that he was sort of like that, right? That he gets the gospel and then he just breathlessly expands all the time. Like he meets a Christian and he says to them, oh, are you a Christian? You already know, get away from me. You already know Jesus. I don't have any time for you. Like I care about the lost. That's the impression we get of Paul, right? Paul stayed sometimes for years in cities discipling the believers for them to walk with Jesus was as important as it was for them to meet him. How do we know that's true? One, it's modeled for us in Antioch, but we know it's true because Jesus himself said so. It's the start of the new year and I'm totally going Great Commission on you right now. Are you ready for this? We are about to get Great Commission up in here. Matthew chapter 28. This is a very, very underrated aspect of our mission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 gives us the kind of breathless expansion that we often think of with Paul because it starts like this, and you know it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus did not stop there. What does he say in verse 20? Teaching them 
Not even just teaching them all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe, to walk in. So not only was teaching important, it wasn't the kind of teaching that's just a download of information. Paul didn't hold like an infomercial conference and give everybody the DVDs and say, good luck with that, you'll do fine. So glad I taught you. What does it look like to teach someone to observe commands? Patient, walking with, stumbling with, helping to carry burdens with. The mission is to make disciples. The mission is to make followers, learners, people who want more of Jesus and look more like Him and walk in His ways. The point is discipleship. And so, because the point is disciples, discipleship has to be a part of our mission. It has to be what we do personally. It has to be what we do as a church. And I think a lot of times what happens is is we make room for arrogance in the midst of all this. Because God gifts us in certain ways. Barnabas seemed to be an encourager kind of person. Maybe he was an equipping guy, a training kind of person. Paul is an entrepreneurial go-for-it. And we would very quickly say like, oh, their strategy is best. And as a whole church sometimes, as whole denominations even, we can get this sort of arrogance about like, oh, well, we're the only, we do mission. You guys don't care about the law. You're holding a what? A potluck? Oh my goodness. Are you serious? As, oh, you guys are just going to talk about Christian things in the Christian bubble, right? We care about, we're the only ones who do mission, right? And then, lest you think like, yeah, some people are like that. There's some churches who almost take it as a point of pride to be unwelcoming to the lost. As though not having a single non-Christian friend for 20 years was normal, right? You know what we do around here? I, I know, I know we haven't, no one's been converted in like 30 years. I know, nope, I, know, I haven't shared my faith, but let me tell you something. We go in deep, right? We go deep. We drill, we drill oil rigs in our church. Like, we got the big mechanical kinds of drill. You you've never seen deep until you've been with us, Right? Is this not the way we talk? People think like this, as though like God's pleased by my depth. And here's what happens is we make, we make ex- mutually exclusive parts of the Great Commission that are supposed to be part and parcel together. They are supposed to be together. And it might very well be that God has gifted particular churches in particular times, even particular individuals to play a different role in the strengthening and establishing of a church in a particular place. And far be it from us, far be it from us, to look at the way that God gifts individuals and gifts churches and places them in time and sort of disdain the way that they've exercised their giftedness. If you asked me, well, what do you, what do you, want, to, what do you want to be? Do you want to be one of those churches that's like deep and like really, you know, you know what I mean? Like really deep? Or do you want to actually reach some people, but maybe just, just reach them? What a dumb question, right? Shame on fictional person, right? Shame on them. Yes, yes, discipleship is mission. That's what Paul's telling us. He's screaming at us. Individually, individually, what is, What are you after in the lives of the people you're praying for and caring for? You ought to want to see them walking faithfully after Jesus. That is the end goal. I could go on that for a long, long time. That's like a whole sermon. I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 12. 
I think you've seen discipleship is mission. I know many of you are bummed because we just totally skipped over Agabus, the crazy prophet, and we, don't, we never even talked about it. He comes up again, believe it or not, in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to talk about prophecy and where he fits in. Not today. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. It's a a shifting of scenes from Antioch to Jerusalem. And we're reminded that the mission is going to be costly. It has always been costly. It costs Jesus his very life. There's a reason that the center of our faith stands a cross. And that's not to remind us that things are going to be easy. It's to remind us, as they were experiencing again in Jerusalem, that mission is always going to cost. At a minimum, comfort probably relationships, resources, and in the instance of James, his very life. 
Herod is the grandson of the same Herod from the Nativity story who ordered the killing of the children. Apparently, violent persecution was a point of pride for their family. It was like, a, it was like on their family seal. Do they have those back then or those things? And I just want to note something really quickly about this. Of course, Peter's rescue is, is astounding. I think this is the third time by my count that he's imprisoned and then released. Acts 4, Acts 5, now Acts chapter 12 again. He seems to always be getting into trouble. But I want you to think about the fact that there is a mystery to the cost of mission. In other words, God providentially ordains that mission will cost. It just will. Jesus calls you to himself and he asks for nothing less than all of you. Everything. For James, the description of the cost of mission for James, we get six whole words. We get six words that describe the cost. He killed James with the sword. Done. And in this moment, the timing of the cost, James meets it immediately. Providentially and mysteriously, God spares Peter, at least in this instance, We believe that the record of the early church shows that later Peter was also martyred. But at least in this instance, for some reason, James is killed and Peter is spared. All of this persecution reminded the church day after day after day a couple of things. One, that they would suffer, that they should expect persecution. Why? Because Jesus said so. Again, listen to the words of Jesus when it comes to the cost of mission and discipleship. This is from John fifteen twenty. It's also interesting to note, this comes in a moment of, of much comfort from Jesus. You know what surrounds this quote that I'm about to read? Jesus saying, do not be afraid. I'm sending a comforter. It's better for you. This is what he says in fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus told them to expect that it would not be easy. Have we lost that expectation, do you think? I know that many of you are praying faithfully for our nation. You pray for our leaders. You pray for our families. I wonder if sometimes the devastation, the emotional toll that those kind of prayers take is not from our earnest desire for God's glory. It's because we are shocked to be experiencing suffering of any kind. We have have completely, we've completely grown foreign to the idea that we would not be a privileged people. We believe somehow that it should be an easy road and Jesus just flat out says, mission will cost you period. If you are here today because you see Jesus as beautiful, you believe that he lived and died and rose again for your sins, if you're going to stand before God one day and say, all my merit is Jesus Christ, that is it. If you endeavor to do that, then let me just completely, completely disavow you of some sort of delusion that what you're called to is an easy life. Obedience is costly And they expected it, and they saw it. The other thing, though, that they saw, in this particular instance anyway, Herod is dealt with, according to the text, 
Do you know this as well? Why are we reading Acts? Because it's such an amazing story of the explosion of the gospel. Are you praying and you've been doubtful or you're, you're thinking I'm in despair about my future because you forget that God can work through circumstances like this? I think sometimes we pray and we hope and we think to ourselves, you know, our only hope for a future in the church is if the government would just sort of back off. We can get this sort of arrogance about us or this kind of idea that somehow our strategy and our planning and our freedom politically or economically is somehow going to be the, the key that turns the engine of the church. You know that God, God exploded the church in the midst of unspeakable, unspeakable persecution. And I know that we need to be aware and I know that we need to speak to the world winsomely. We should never rejoice in things that are evil and disgraceful to God. Of course, I love the freedoms that we have. There's very good reasons to pray and think and speak and vote in ways that you feel like are glorifying to God, all that sort of stuff. But we must not think that God is somehow inept or unable to bless us or to grow the church or to move the mission forward if those things are not in place. We really, really, really need to stop for a moment and think that. Like, why, why are we longing for those things? And I think a lot of times it's because we simply want it to be easier. We really do. We think like, you know, it would be great. Why, does, why don't we have government-mandated churches? Like, they would just buy buildings for us and land and send everybody. To, why, wouldn't that be the way to go? And I'm telling you this. The message of the fact that the mission is costly is this, that God is sovereign even over all of these difficulties. That's what they're learning. That's what they're learning in Jerusalem. No one in Jerusalem had any delusions about the fact that the mission could go forward even if the king executed one of the apostles, one of the leaders of the church. And I think we need that kind of confidence Pray and speak and do whatever you, you need to do, but let's not despair. Let's not act like... Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. And I know that's a totally Forrest Gump way to move on to the next point, but it's true. That's just all I have to say. The last thing that I think that we ought to really wrestle with, the reason we can, we can look with confidence to the future and not despair is because the mission is God's. The mission is God's. You need to know that. You know why? Because when we're successful, we'll be self-righteous and think that we've done something awesome. You know why things are working? Us, right? That's a terrible, terrible place to be. When things are going terrible and no one shows up and your words fall flat, you think it's about you, you'll despair. You will be completely in depression if it's about you. But fortunately, this text is screaming at us that the mission is God's and it's His alone. I just want to point out all the way through how God is moving and God is the substance and God receives the glory. Verse 20 of chapter 11. Verse 20 of chapter 11, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. God is the substance of their preaching. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Not logic, not persuasion, not a good life, not the benefits. They were preaching God. He is the substance of their preaching. The source of their success in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Why did this work? Because God was with them. Where did they turn? The substance of the preaching was God. The engine of this success was God. And where did they turn? To the Lord, according to verse 21. He's the destination of the mission. Right? He's the end of the mission. What did Barnabas rejoice at when he gets to Antioch? 
He did not rejoice in their persuasion, their power, their political savvy. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. He looked and he said, God is all over this. God is the one that is doing this. He encouraged them to be faithful to the Lord. And continually, according to verse 24, a great many people were added where? To God. And then, of course, we get this sad tale of Herod learning too late that life is not about him and that all things are headed to God. And so in this story of Herod, we get this terrible version of his death. There's actually a record of this death in one of the, one of the historians from this time who records the fact that King Herod did in fact die from a stomach illness. They describe the circumstances of this exact, this exact moment when he comes before and gives a speech and all the people chant. Although there's an interesting detail included in the historian's account that I think Luke could have spiced things up a little bit and included for us. It says in verse 21 of chapter 12 with Herod that he put on his royal robes. According to this historian, those robes were like glaring, gleaming silver. So that when he walked out, the sun hit them and people could barely, they could barely look, right? And so, this is the mental picture. M.C. Herod, right? M.C. Hammer. Anybody with me? No? <laughs> Lamest joke ever? Could be. Could be. That's the kind of, you know, like, he was like bedazzled. I think that's the only way you could think about it. He, his robes were just this, it was the, the height, the pinnacle of pomp and circumstance, Right? He just rolls out, look at me. And if you don't know who MC Hammer is, YouTube can help. He wore these, anyway. So Herod dies a death that Luke interprets for us as coming because he got this last point wrong. He thought life was about him or something else or his legacy or his glory or his family or the empire. He did not give glory to God, and God does not share his glory with another. If there's one thing Scripture is clear about, it is that. The emphasis has been on God throughout this entire passage. It's very clearly, obviously, in the death of Herod. Listen to what John Stott says about the Lord adding to the Lord. He says, when we see the Lord adding to the Lord so that he is both the subject and object, the source and goal of evangelism, We have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. We call people to a very real faith. People need to exercise faith in Jesus. We call them to a very real repentance. They need to turn from their sins. We are involved, of course. But the sum total of the gospel is basically this. This is a pithy way someone said it. I think it's really helpful. The sum total of the gospel is this. God saves us by himself, from himself, unto himself, for himself. That's that's the totality of the gospel. Why can you rest in Jesus Christ? Because God has put you there. That's why. God saves us by himself. In other words, the hand of the Lord that is giving success. We see that over and over through Acts. He saves us from himself. If you are not in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God will cast you away from his presence. It's the holiness of God in the end that becomes the damnation of those who are in their sins. But he saves us unto himself. He restores right relationship. In the end, the promise of Revelation, 
There will not need to be a son. Jesus the Son will be our light. I will be their God. They will be my people. The presence of God, His very person, is the gift. That's what we are saved to, Himself. And of course, in the end, we're saved for Himself so that He would receive glory from all of us. You know Romans 3.23. What's the tragedy of sin? The tragedy of sin is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory that we were designed for. And the glory is designed to be directed to God. The mission is God's, start to finish. This really, really ought to reorient us, to help us, should give us confidence. I don't want to preach. I don't want to preach again. I don't want to show up next week if it's, if it's our mission, if it's my mission. If I just need to convince people week after week, please, please, would you just behave couldn't you just stop the sinning? Hey, could you bring some friends, the people who, like my employers, they really, they like it better if people come. Hey guys, my mom's coming next month. When she show, could you, really? If my job was to convince you because it was my mission, I quit. I, I just, I quit. I'm done. But it's not. We have hope and we have, we have a light ahead of us because God is going ahead of us and it's His mission. It has been from the beginning and it always will be God's. There's no better place to commit ourselves, I think, than to that. We're going to come to the communion table. I want to pray for us before we do. God, thank You for taking charge of taking charge of our lives. Thank you that you don't leave this up to us. It's tempting in our pride to think that somehow our strategy and our thinking and our wisdom uh, could make things work perfectly, but we know that that's not the case. We trust you. We give Midtown to you. We give Four Oaks to you. We ask God that you'd save. You are not too weak to save. Your hand is, is mighty. We pray that as we preach Jesus, the substance of the gospel, that your hand would be with us so that many would believe and turn to the Lord. And I pray for those who are here this morning and, and hearing the gospel. God, give them grace to walk in it, to want to be a disciple. We pray that as we come to this communion table that you would stir in us an affection and a longing for Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. We come to the communion table every week uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is to remind us of our need, right? We believe that God meets us in this place. First and foremost, we come to proclaim the gospel again and again and again. We have no other hope than this. Your neediness, your unworthiness, your sin needs to be confessed and placed at the feet of Jesus. And that when we do that, we have a merciful God. That's what this story is about. The table is about a God who gave himself prepared a feast for you. We shouldn't come to this in a hasty kind of way. I don't think we should come if we feel like there's uh, maybe hardness of heart. If you don't understand what this is about, then there's no reason to feel obligated, don't feel bad. But the invitation is definitely here. And here in this moment even, you confess your need and God meets you with mercy. That's what we know to be true. Please do come. This is Jesus, his body and his blood. He gave it for you for forgiveness of sins.